0: I want to speak tonight on a very determinative subject, namely how to prepare children and young people for marriage. Marriage today is a lot like flies on a window pane. Those out want in. Those in want out. Marriage has never been more popular, never more perverted. In fact, I think every marriage license should be compelled to have stamped upon it, this marriage could be hazardous to your health. Dr. James Peterson, distinguished professor at the University of Southern California, did some research a number of years ago and came up with a startling conclusion. He discovered that he could only find six out of every 100 couples, married for 10 years or longer, fulfilled in the relationship. And this so jarred him that he committed himself to an intensive research program to discover why it is that marriages are coming unglued. And he came up with three primary reasons, and I want to share them with you. I want you to think through their implications. First reason he found was improper choices. Most couples marry too soon without adequate time to test the relationship. He said it's quite comparable to Russian roulette with one exception. There are six bullets in the chambers, not one. I think this problem is exacerbated in the Christian community by virtue of two problems. First of all, our treatment of singles. I have discovered that the average single person, 25, 26, 27 years of age, who is not married, married, has to undergo a great deal of gas, a lot of questioning. How come you're not married? Well, what kind of a pervert are you? And I find that that pressure creates a lot of difficulty. The problem is also complicated by the fact that we are teaching properly do not marry a non-Christian. What we are not teaching properly, don't marry any Christian. Just because this young man, this young woman is a believer is no guarantee that they are a good marriage partner for you. And I find particularly working with college and university students who come to Christ... And then, you know, perhaps have a date with a young man or a young woman and it's a beautiful relationship. Like one gal said to me, this is the first guy I ever went out with who didn't invite me to go to bed. And so automatically, but not necessarily legitimately, she concludes this must be God's marriage partner for me. The second reason he discovered for the failure of marriages is unrealistic expectation. You see, many times we are expecting marriage to do what only God can do. I had a student show up in my office some time ago. He said, professor I'm thinking about getting married. Well, I said, that's encouraging. I said, do you have a young lady? No, no. He said, I don't. But he said, I've got my specifications. I said, well, what are you looking for? Did you believe it? He pulled out three typewritten pages of expectations. I read it over. I said, man, you have done a lot of thinking about this. Oh, yes, prof. I said, uh, I'm writing a book in this area. I said, would you mind if I use this? Typical student reaction. Oh, no, prof. Anything to help you. (laughs) I said, would you mind if I ask you one question? No, no, not at all. I said, how many of these characteristics are true of you? I beg your pardon. I said, how many of these characteristics are true of you? He said, I never thought of that. I said, that's your problem. You see, marriage is not a question of finding the right partner. It's a question of being the right person. And the problem in our society is that oftentimes we cannot tell the difference between love and lust. So we marry a body instead of a person. And if you marry a body, I'll guarantee you, every year goes by, you're further out of business. Don't look at me that way. All four of my children were home from university at Christmas vacation a number of years ago. My wife and I were sitting in the bedroom reading, and all of a sudden I heard this raucous laughter. I mean, the place was coming on glue. And so we rushed out to find out what was going on. You know what was happening? They were looking at my college annual. Hey, look at that. Dad had hair. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha! Look at that. He actually played baseball. See, they think I showed up the morning after the Earth's crust hardened. There's one thing you know about bodies, and that is bodies deteriorate. No exception. But persons develop. So if you marry a body, you marry that which is in the process of deteriorating. If you marry a person, you marry someone who conceivably is becoming more delightful every day. Telling some students at lunch yesterday, I look back, upon the early days of my marriage and I wonder what in the world I was excited about compared with the sheer unadulterated privilege of 43 plus years with the same woman. There's a third reason he discovered and that is inadequate preparation. You see, most of us spend more time, more money, more effort on the wedding than we do on the marriage. I met a little gal on the parking lot in our church. She said, prof, I'm planning to get married. Oh, I said, wonderful. She told me a little about it. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, have you had any premarital counseling? Her eyes dropped, she said, no. I sure wish I could afford it, but I, I can't right now. I said, look, I can get you the best premarital counseling in the city of Dallas for $25, three sessions. Well, she said, that's, that's very inexpensive, but I, I just can't afford it. I attended her wedding a month later. She spent over $8,000 on flowers. guess where they were the morning after the wedding you see it's interesting men and women because marriage is the most important of human relations and yet it's the one for which we are least prepared to become a mason you've got to know something to get married you don't need to know anything just grunt and you're in Become a garbage collector in the city of Dallas. You need three weeks' intensive training program. 200 bucks a week and all you can eat, it's not bad. (laughs) So for a few moments tonight, I would like to suggest for your thinking some basic principles of preparing people for marriage. The first one is you need to establish clear-cut biblical objectives. You cannot make proper use of anything until you know what it's made for. That's true of a sailboat or a safety pen. I hold in my hand a felt-tip pen, ideal for the purpose for which it was made. But if I should decide to use that pen as a screwdriver, not only will it not accomplish that purpose but if i should use it in that way it will ruin the pen for the purpose for which it was made and i think it is long overdue that we open god's glove compartment and check out the owner's manual so if you have a bible i want you to turn to the book of genesis for just a few moments And I want to plug into the narrative in chapter 1, verse 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, listen carefully to what the text says. Genesis 1, verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Mark the next statement. Male and female created he them. Will you note the first mention of the creation of man underscores the polarity of the sexes. You see, there is no such thing as an individual without maleness or femaleness. And yet you are compelled to live in a society that is masculinizing women and feminizing men with devastating results. In fact, there are many professionals who seriously question if we can ever recover from the devastation. As you read through chapter 1, you find a repeated statement, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But in chapter 2 and verse 18, your attention is jarred with a sharp contrast. As you read, but the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And every man said, good night. No wonder you invited me out here for this. (laughs) May I remind you that is not the statement of a human pervert. That's the statement of Almighty God. And will you mark the context? It's a perfect environment. No ecological problems here. Man has unlimited creative potential, all that he would ever need to challenge him. And by the way, he had unbroken fellowship and communion with god himself and with all of that god said i'm disturbed over the of the over the aloneness of man and so the text says he said i will make a helper suitable for him the hebrew is one answering back to and don't take that too literally The thought is of a mating cry going out, but there is no one to respond. I was up at Princeton University recently talking to a group of Christian kids on this passage, and we had an interaction time, and one guy said, hey, how come the first thing that happens after this is the naming of the animal? Why does that follow this verse? That's a good question. You ought to ask. I'm glad you did. You see, what happens is this. In the process of naming the animals, Adam is introduced to a phenomenon. And that is for every male, there is a female. There is one answering back to the other. But for Adam, twice over, it is repeated for emphasis. There was no one to respond to his need. And men and women, God never wastes a woman on a man. You see, what he is doing is creating in the man the recognition of his aloneness, the recognition that he had empty spaces that could only be filled up by another. Now, you might also ask, Why didn't God create another man? For the obvious reason that another man could never fill up the empty spaces of that which was lacking in the man. And so it's fascinating to read in verse 22 when he's introduced to this woman, this helper suitable for him the man said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh what a tame translation you know what the hebrew says wow where have you been all of my life you see he suddenly recognized her as the answer to his aloneness now You got a pen or a pencil? I want you to underline the next verse. In fact, I want you to underline three verbal statements in this verse. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You got the pen or the pencil? underline the verb leave underline the verb cleave and underline the verbal expression become one flesh because wrapped up in that verse of scripture in those three verbs are the divine objectives of marriage and may i remind you that the entire doctrine of marriage in the scripture is founded on this verse it's repeated by jesus christ it's repeated by the apostle paul now let's take a moment to look at these verbs first of all for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother now you need to understand that's a very strong verb it means to abandon to forsake Somebody out there in the fifth row saying, "You mean to tell me that a man is supposed to abandon and forsake his parents?" That's exactly what he's saying. But he's supposed to forsake them in a particular area. He is never to forsake them in terms of responsibility. But in order to establish a new relationship, the old relationship has to be broken and i'm here to tell you with more experience than i wish i had there is devastation in marriages when a young man fails to leave his father and mother in terms of relationship see god will everywhere say honor your father and your mother he will say, a man who doesn't care for his parents is worse than an infidel, which is pretty strong language. But what he's saying is that one relationship must be broken in order for another relationship to be established. And unfortunately, with parents, it's frequently the last thing to be broken, namely the psychological umbilical cord. See, I find many a Christian parent is frankly guilty of emotional incest. They get a grip on their kid and they won't let him go. And what fascinates me about this is that God said this to a couple who never had to leave their parents. God said this to a couple before they ever had a child, which is exactly when you need to get the message. I had a little boy in my office some time ago. His mother brought him, supposedly a problem child. The kid was disgustingly normal. And I was enjoying my time with him. And finally I said to her, Madam, do you know what this boy needs? Oh, what does he need? I said, "Uh, he needs a week at a summer camp. Oh, he'd never make it. I said, lady, we won't have any problem with him. Our only problem was with you. And Pop's sitting over here, not saying anything. So I said to well, sir, I want to give you an assignment. I said, I want you to see to it that this kid goes to camp for a week this summer. I really think he enjoyed the assignment. So finally, Mom gets up enough courage. She packs the kid's suitcase, seven sets of underwear in there. Kid comes back at the end of the week, all seven sets still in there you got to peel off the original ones. Best thing that ever happened to the kid. You know why I'm sensitive about this? We get the end product of this at the seminary. <laughs> you should see what they send us. A lot of our students arrive with their umbilical cords in their hands looking for a place to plug them in. (laughs) Well, we better move on here. (laughs) The next verb is cleave. Know what it means? It means to glue. He's talking about a separation-proof relationship. God's design is always one man for one woman for life. Now, if you get two kids who come down to the front of a church and either verbally or non-verbally say to themselves, you know, if this thing doesn't work out, we can always bail out, then the possibilities of them getting a divorce is almost phenomenal. You show me two kids who come to the front of a church to be married with the conviction there is no way out and I will show you a couple who has great prospects for a marriage because they're going to work out their problems, And that's exactly what it takes. See, happily married couples and poorly married couples face exactly the same sets of problems. The difference is in their commitment. A few years ago, I was called to jury duty in a federal court in downtown Dallas. And if you've ever been down this road, you know, you spend most of your time waiting for something to happen. So the judge dismissed us for a recess, and I decided to walk around to see what was going on in the other courts. So I saw a domestic relations court. I hadn't been in one of those lately. I thought, I'm going to go in there and find out what's going on. I went in to see a sight I will never forget. I saw a Ph.D. and a gal, a Rhodes scholar with two master's degrees, up front like two five-year-olds. They were having a knockdown drag out. Their kids were running all over the courtroom. The bailiff spent most of his time trying to get the kids back in a chair. And I was watching the judge, and he was losing the joy. And I, you know, you could see it written all over his face, listening to this Mickey Mouse. And finally, he turned and he said, Look, woman, you want to live with him or not? She said, I don't. Bang! Divorce granted. And I walked out of the courtroom and threw up. Every day in your county, here in Southern California, another judge's gavel drops to the desk, and those scorching words are uttered, divorce granted. I mean, a relationship began with delight and it's ended with disillusionment. What they thought were stars in their eyes turned out to be sand. And the reason is conditional commitment. Sure, I'll stay with you as long as you meet my needs. My friends, I got news for you. If you are expecting another human being to meet your needs in marriage, you are a greatly disillusioned individual. There is no man, no woman on the planet that can meet all of your needs in a marriage. That's why you need Christ. That's why you need the spiritual development. That's why my first commitment has to be to Him in order to make sure that my commitment to her, to my partner, is permanent. But now look at the third one. Your first task is to prepare your children to leave. And by the way, in our culture, you have approximately 18 years in which to pull that off. And yet so many people get bent out of shape, and some of you have experienced it. See, I run into people all the time and they say, oh, Professor Hendrick." <laughs> I said, what's the matter? (laughs) My boy's going to college. Oh, wonderful. I said, what have you been doing for the last 18 years? (laughs) Preparing him for college. Well, then, friend, you ought to be singing the Hallelujah Chorus. See, your job is to prepare your children to leave. Secondly, your job is to prepare them to cleave. Hopefully, they got a model in you, in your relationship to your partner. But I want you to underline that last verbal expression. Become one flesh. See, that's not just physical. To bring two kids to the front of a church, pronounce them... Man and wife, send them out to a nearby motel to have intercourse, does not constitute one flesh. My friend, you can do that with two animals. When the Bible talks about one flesh, it's talking about a person who intellectually is one with the partner, who socially Becomes one with the partner, who emotionally becomes one, and obviously who physically becomes one, because that's merely the outworking of the intimacy in other areas. And one of the hardest things to get young people to do is to ask, "What do you know about your partner?" It's so one of my favorite questions of. The guy is, hey, did you ever see her with her hair up? Uh, Why? Did you ever see her with her hair in color? In uh, color. Getting late in the day. Did you ever see him in uh, curlers? No, I don't think I have. Well, you better get a view of that, man. Because someday you're going to wake up with a mouthful of those things. You ever see her in a Southern California, rainstorm with her hair? I mean, man, if you see her like that and you are going through the ceiling, how beautiful you got the real disease. What well, I got one for the gal. I say, uh, you much in love with her? <laughs> you ever see him angry? Oh, he never gets angry. Would you like me to try? (laughs) See, the problem is you marry a person. And to be sure, every person has potential. Every person also has problems. And you tend to come into a marriage with a picture of your ideal partner. That's the person you think you are marrying. But when you get in marriage, you got a very real person. And now you got an option. You either tear up the picture or you tear up the partner. And becoming one flesh. Says you move into a relationship where you understand I'm marrying a human being, a sinner, who has all of the capabilities that any sinner has. And unless I'm prepared to move into that relationship. Allowing the Lord Jesus to control my life. Allowing the Lord Jesus to control the life of my partner. I'm gonna be in real trouble and real fast. Now there's a second principle I wanna share with you. And that is you need to cultivate good family relationships. You see, there's one thing we know. Good families produce good marriages. Let me see if I can help you. I want to give you four or five characteristics of a good family. Number one, a good family is a place where people are secure. That is, they don't have to prove anything. I wonder how many kids have come out of homes where they have never been convinced that they do not have to prove something. I just talked to a dear guy here today, asked him if I could use it tonight. He said, of course. The only thing this kid ever got from his parents was the result of a performance standard. If you do well in athletics, you do well in music, you do well in academics, we like you. You don't do too well in any of those. And you're in trouble. By the way, a lot of us have carried that over into our Christian life. Are you on a performance basis with God? So you need to understand nothing you ever do will cause God to love you more. Nothing you ever do will cause Him to love you less. My friend, that's the most radical statement you could ever embrace. But if you come out of a home where it's all performance, your acceptance is determined by what you do, not by who you are. That makes for rough marital living. Because then I spend all of my time trying to figure out, am I on my wife or husband's good side? Am I performing up to your expectations? And I wonder how many gals have gone down to Marl's Tubes by some guy coming along with that ridiculous line, if you love me, you would do everything for me. To which any intelligent and secure girl would respond by saying, if you love me, you would never ask me to do anything that would cause me to lose respect for myself or for you. But you see, if you are not a secure person, then somebody comes down the line, and I mean they've got a line, and they fall in droves, even in the Christian community. Isn't it interesting that some of us who teach most emphatically the eternal security of the believer are producing the most insecure people? That's something for you to think through. Here's a second one. And that is, they are loved. Unconditionally loved. They are loved. Not because you do so and so, but you are loved no matter what. A young man came to me some time ago. He said, uh, What do you think, Prof, of my intended wife? Well, I said, I had some fascinating time with her and I got wonderful news for you. He said, really? What's that? I said, I talked to her about her relationship with her father. You guys who are sitting here want to know what kind of woman you want. One of the finest women you will ever meet as a good marriage partner is a woman who has a very healthy relationship with her father. You see, a girl's relationship to her father is one of the most determinative relationships in her life. I'm not talking about a sick relationship. Every now and then I get into these situations where somebody is telling me, oh, this is my little girl. And I break out in a cold sweat because all of the time he's telling me about his little girl, but he never once talks to me about his big girl. And that's very revealing. See, I'm talking about a man who understands that he is a model for that girl when that girl has a healthy, positive, loving relationship with that father, I'm telling you, she's a good candidate for somebody's wife. Here's a third thing. Now this may rattle your categories a little bit, so fasten your safety belt. Be a little turbulent air here for a moment. Quality homes have a lot of fun. They laugh a lot. You know, I get into a lot of Christian homes and I kid you not, it looks like it's going to rain. I was in a home some time ago. It's Sunday morning. I'm supposed to preach in the morning worship service. Uh, I come down for breakfast. Boy, you know, this little enthusiastic girl sitting next to me about three, all of a sudden she hits her milk, woo, right down in front of my soup. Oh, her mother came on, oh, woo, Professor Henry. I said, thank you for making me feel at home. <laughs> oh, she began to apologize. I said, look, lady, don't apologize. If a person has children, you will never have to apologize. If they don't have children, no amount of apology will help. <laughs> Boy, I got, I got the most searching message from my son many years ago. I packed all of my four kids in a Ford station wagon and took them all over America in the Bible conference circuit. That was an experience. We sang together, what they feed us, we will swallow. And after I was out here at Forest Home and Mount Hermon and the firs, you name it, we went to it. Finally, I came home. And as I'm driving in the driveway, you hear this squeaky little voice from the back seat as my son says, hey dad. How come you're not as funny at home as you are out there? You know, you feel like turning around, drop dead. It's amazing how God gets your attention. You have a lot of fun in your life. Well, say something. Yeah. A whole lot of fun. (laughs) See, I really think some of us are going to get home to heaven and God is going to say, you know, I'm really sorry you didn't enjoy it more. Man, I never intended it to be that grim. And I think that needs to pervade our home. Fourth, a good home is very realistic. I mean, life is sliced real there. To have people come to me, that get bent out of shape, say, oh, Dr. Hendricks, my children fight. I said, you gotta be kidding. No. (laughs) I said, that's wonderful preparation for marriage. why kids who grow up in a home of multiple children is often better prepared for marriage than the kid who comes up in the single-child home. See, it's nothing like getting a fire engine in your head to get your attention. Or as a guy said to me at the seminary some time ago, I said, tell me about your family. This is the most exciting thing I've ever had in my life. I said, really? He said, how many children did you have in your home? Fourteen. Fourteen. I said, 14, where were you? He said, I was number 13. I said, how did you survive? He said, that's a good question, probably. (laughs) He said, after dad said amen, man, 14 pair of hands came into the chicken and I almost lost it. You ask yourself, how realistic are you? Because we come with all of these Fakey ideas. I even had people come out to my home to look to see if there's a little pink cloud over the thing. You know what happens in our home? The same thing that happens in your home. The washing machine breaks down. Everything comes unglued. It's a realistic home. And that's a good place to prepare for marriage. Fifth, good homes have quality relationships. And those quality relationships are built at a number of levels. You happen to be looking at the world's sorriest fishermen. I mean, I'm not medium lousy, I skunk it every single time I go. So I come out here to Newport Beach, California. Joe Aldridge was pastor of Mariners Church. He said, Prof, I'm going to take you fishing. We're going to get some fish. I'm taking four professional fishermen with me. We went out from Newport Beach, my friends. We never saw a fish. (laughs) By the time we came back to that harbor, they were just about to throw me over, convinced Jonah had come back. I remember my two boys and I going to East Texas to fish, and somebody gave me a lure. Oh, wow, Hendrix, this is the one. This will do it. Spit on it before you put it in. <laughs> we did everything, and I would look down, watching those fish swim around that lure, waving at us. <laughs> That's why they go to school. <clears throat> Sorry about that. My man, we had to stop at a fish market so we got something to bring in. But the truth of the matter is, you ask my kids, what do you remember most? They don't remember what you think. My son will say to you, if you ask him, what do you remember most? He said, I remember my dad going late to a banquet to fix my bicycle tire. They will say, I remember going down to East Texas, man, we never caught a fish, but we just spent the most wonderful time. And we didn't do a lot of talking, just being together. I have a children's book that I've gone through five copies of. First of all, with my own children and now with my grandchildren. It's the excellent book by Marjorie Williams entitled The Velveteen Rabbit. You never read it. Thought it'd be required reading at the Masters College. What is real, asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came in to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Ah, sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once? Like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. (laughs) (laughs) And your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby but these things don't matter at all because once you're real you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand that's the kind of relationship that constitutes a good family let me give you a fourth one develop A deep sense of responsibility in your children. It's my judgment, men and women, that we are doing too much for our children. And growth comes through responsibility. Every time you do anything for your child, which your child is capable of doing for himself, you are making him a marital cripple. But as I travel around, my wife and I will often get into a home and there are a bunch of kids in the home which we always enjoy and the place is, you know, pretty well strewn with toys. Who's picking them up? Mom's picking them up. And I've often said to a woman, these your toys? What in the world are you picking them up for? See, many of you young people have been sold down the river and you're just in the process of catching on. A lot of you had parents who came up the hard way. I mean, they had to struggle, they had to work, they had to do everything in the world to get where they got. And finally, when they got there, they said, my kid isn't going to have to do that. You know, I I had to do all of that work, I'm not going to let them do that. And in the process, they mortgaged your soul by failing to do for you what God used to shape and to mold them. We have a very, very wealthy family in our community. They have six children. They are all grown. They are very prominent in their profession, in the business world and in the community there's one reason there isn't one of those six kids that is even slightly spoiled there's not one of them that's materialistic though they're all millionaires they don't even have a trace of it because they were reared by parents who were smart enough to know you cannot take the cost out of life and develop the same kind of product. My boy came running into my office one day and said, hey, daddy, look at this, I got a chrysalis and there's something live in it. And we looked at it and I said, man, that's a butterfly in the process of forming. Well, we said, great, dad, let's go get the scissors and cut it open. I said, nah, man, you cut it open And you're going to kill it. Well, you know, kids, he watched it and he watched it and kept watching the things struggling inside. And he was a sensitive little guy, you know, and he figured, I got to help him out. So he goes and gets the scissors and he snips off the top of it. And little worm, in the process of turning into a butterfly, falls on the ground and dies and the tears came rolling down his face. So he said, Daddy, I killed it. I said, you did, Bob. He said, but I was trying to help it. I said, I appreciate your motivation. I love you for your sensitivity, trying to help this little creature. But you also need to know that all of the struggle that a little caterpillar has to go through to open up that chrysalis is what develops two things. It develops the color, and it develops the ability of that butterfly to fly. I happen to believe the same thing is true in the parenting process. Any of you guys ever been to Yellowstone? Any of you? Okay, a few of you. You remember what happens when you go into Yellowstone? They give you a piece of paper. You remember? What does the paper say? Do not feed the bears. About that big. You know I mean? You don't have to have 20-20 to read that baby. But you get on the inside, what are they doing? Feeding the bears. And there's a ranger standing there. And I say, I can't believe this. I mean, you come out with do not feed the bears. And these people are doing exactly what you told them not to do. He says, you don't know the half of it. I said, what do you mean? He said, every year we have to carry off dozens of bears who die by the side of the road waiting for the tourists to show up. They've lost their ability to fend for food. I repeat, every time you do anything for your child, your child is capable of doing for himself, you're making a marital cripple. And some of you guys who may have been sold short, coming out of whatever family you came out with, and you're now at the master's college and you now have to work your way partly through and you now have to do a lot of struggle and you now gotta work out your own budget and you now gotta clean your room and gotta do all of those nasty things you've got to do are in the process of getting the best education you have ever gotten. I look back to my days in college, I kid you not, men and women, They were some of the most shaping days of my life. As a person, college shaped me more than graduate school. My graduate school shaped me theologically and in terms of my profession. But it was the college. Those days when I was out, all on my own, had to figure out how I was going to pay the next tuition bill, how I was going to manage my time, how I was gonna learn to read because I came out of a high school that sold me short, gave me the English award, and when I got to Wheaton College, got pushed in the lowest English section in the freshman class. Best thing that ever happened to me because they gave us the greatest professor I ever had in my life. And after the first six weeks I go into that professor, I'm flunking three courses three blue slips, never went to an athletic event, never dated, never involved myself in any social activity, spent all of my time studying, and I'm flunking three courses. I mean, as a way of getting your attention. And I'll never forget going to see Dr. King, and he smiled and said, Howie, you don't know how to read. And he was right. Introduced me to a book, The Change the whole course of my life by Mortimer Adler, How to Read a Book. I learned basic things that I should have learned. And that's why I got very sensitive about that with my children. Can I just give you a word of caution? And a lot of you guys are not married, but in time you will be, and in time God will give you a family. me the most important thing you can do for a child particularly if you're interested in developing someone who has leadership capacities is to make sure that child knows how to read there's nothing more essential readers are leaders and leaders are readers my one son went to First grade, oh he's so excited, Dad, I'm gonna learn how to read. Well, it's just gonna take a little while, Bob. Oh wow, I don't think so. Comes home the first day, cry, I don't know how to read. Said, Look, man, hang in, buddy, it's gonna take a little while. We go through the whole first year and he can't read. So I go down to see this young lady freshly minted from a school of education. And she said to me, Mr. Hendricks, the important thing is not that he learn how to read. The important thing is that he'd be happy. <laughs> so I figure we're now into the happiness cult. We go through the whole year, and at the end of the year, he's disgustingly happy, but he can't read. I went down to see this young lady, and I said, Madam, did it ever occur to you my son would be happier if he knew how to read? I really don't think she thought that one through. It cost me 6 clams to put him in a remedial reading program, the best 600 bucks I've ever invested because he reads faster than I do, which is very, very fast. And it set him up for life. Reading is an essential skill. And if somewhere back along the line, parents use television as a babysitting means for you, and didn't provide reading material, and your reading level has gone down and down, then you need to say, boy, that's a responsibility I've got to pick up on, and I'm going to guarantee that my children have it. There's one last thing I want to leave with you, and that is, you need to commit your children. And for those of you not married, you need to commit Your marriage to the will of God. In Psalm chapter 37, the 37th Psalm, there is a beautiful verse, two of them. Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5. Psalm says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. By the way, this is one of the first verses I ever committed to memory when I became a Christian. And I can still remember saying it over and over again. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know, that can't be true. You mean to tell me if I delight myself in him, he's going to give me exactly what I want. See, my problem was, I was focused on what I want, not on what he wants. And there is a strange spiritual metamorphosis that takes place some of you are experiencing it some of you have shared it with me and that is his desires are becoming your desire his delights are becoming your delight now i want to ask you a simple question you think god can make a better choice of your marriage partner than you can yes or no if you tell me yes then why don't you turn it over to him see I happen to believe that it is harder to get out of the will of God than most of us think if you want it I mean if you don't want it it's a piece of cake but God is not playing games with you he's not saying you didn't find my will did you not playing a sacred game of hide and seek. Far more interested do you find his will than you are. Then why don't you relax in him? See, I see guys and gals get so uptight, scared to death that they're going to end up unmarried. Did anybody ever teach you the basic lesson that there's something worse than being unmarried? And that's being married to the wrong person. That's what ought to concern you. I thank God upon every remembrance of the day when I finally gave up came to the conclusion God could do a far better job of choosing my bride than I could. You should know the woman he chose for me. i married so far beyond me, it's painful. Don't look at me that way. So will most of you. It's just, that it usually takes you a while to catch on. I mean, everybody else knows it. But one day you'll wake up. i break out in a cold sweat thinking that I could have missed the woman that God gave me by insisting that I could do a better job than he could.